Um, There was work, but there's no futility or toil or the, the hardship of work. And then greatest of all, his provision, his peace, he gave them his presence. God was there with them. They had a relationship um, with the eternal creator God of the universe. This is the perfection into which God placed Adam and Eve. Of course, we know how the story unfolds. That's not where they stayed. As we talked about on Friday, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Adam and Eve abandoned their role as God's ambassadors, as his representatives in submission to him, decided to go their own way. They rebelled against God, and so their their sin brought into the world pain and suffering, futility and toil, death and separation from God. They're, They're sent out of the garden. That all falls apart. We saw then, um, through the story of Noah, how God brought judgment and cleansed the earth as humanity grew, sin and wickedness continued to grow until God said, look at the the thoughts and the intentions of man's heart are only evil all the time. Uh, And so he wiped out every man, woman, and child, except for Noah. God was merciful to Noah. He told Noah that it's it's through him that I'm going to establish this covenant. He would preserve humanity. He would keep his promise alive through Noah and his family, keeping humanity alive. As the flood dried up, we walked through this recently, we see this, this new creation imagery all over the place. Noah is presented as a, a new Adam. It's this new, fresh beginning of the world. And yet, it's almost immediately clear, (laughs) this is not the end. This is not the final new beginning. Um, Just like God had said before the flood, he says again immediately after the flood, the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. He's sinful still. Wickedness continued, and so then did brokenness and suffering and pain and sorrow and death and separation from God. Something else, though, also continued. God's promise continued. God's promise continued. This plan to to one day restore the world, that he would still fulfill that creation covenant to rescue for himself a people out from sin, out from death, out from under the curse, and one day return them to his perfect provision and peace and presence. Kids, how long is it from one Christmas to another Christmas? Easy answer. What? Shout it out. A year. year. How many of you think a year is a long time waiting for Christmas? Like from Boxing Day, you're like checking off the days for next Christmas, right? It's a long time. Well, it was 3,000 years. 3,000 years. That promise continued to just kind of hang out there and linger, to continue to grow as God kind of clarified it and reaffirmed it throughout the ages until finally Jesus entered the scene. That's Christmas. He's come. The baby born who would be the savior of his people. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. He 
live this perfect, sinless life, was falsely accused and wrongfully tried, hung on the cross. Good Friday, we celebrate. He, he died. And just like Noah in the story of the flood, um, there's judgment before this fresh start. We remembered Good Friday, the death of Jesus. It's the wrath of God coming down. But this time, instead of falling on all the wicked sinners like it did in the days of Noah, it fell on Jesus in their place. Three days later, following that judgment, just like Noah emerging out of the flood, Jesus comes up out of the grave. Once again, there's, there's this imagery of the new creation is all over the place. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all speak of the, the resurrection. They start drawing our attention to the fact that it's the first day of the week at early dawn. Day one, let there be light. The new creation has come. The book of John, Mary Magdalene confuses Jesus for a, a gardener. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15 come right out and say it. Jesus is the new Adam, the last Adam. Jesus in his resurrection uh, is the beginning of a new creation. A new creation. So this story doesn't begin at Jesus. The coming of Jesus is actually the beginning of the conclusion of the story. His resurrection is God beginning to fulfill the promises that he made from the very beginning. He's a new Adam of a new world, a new beginning for a new humanity, a new creation. And so in one sense, that new creation isn't here yet. I don't know if you noticed, we still live in a world of brokenness and sin and sorrow and death. We're not living in that new world yet. But in another sense, it is here. It has already started. Jesus is the new Adam. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he too is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the, the new has come. The new creation isn't fully here, but it is beginning. It has begun. And the resurrection, we celebrate today, Resurrection Sunday, it's the beginning of God fulfilling those promises. Now, now I hope we're ready to dive into uh, where that new creation will take us, what that new creation means for us, what exactly uh, has the resurrection of Jesus Christ promised and, 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 and secured for us in the future. Have a look with me. Isaiah 25 this so is what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah. Again, he's taking that first promise and he's just filling it out. Follow along with me as I read Isaiah 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's place is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. 
the heat in a, like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread out over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in its place, as straw is trampled down into the dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this beautiful morning as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the hope and the glory that is wrapped up in it. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see as we walk through this broken, dreary, broken world. But in the resurrection, there is a promise. There is a great hope. There is a glorious day ahead. Father, open our eyes that we may see your truth, soften our hearts, that we might be formed and shaped by it. God, would you take my feeble words and use them, that, that your word might go forward. Lord, if I have anything to say that is not from you, that is not true to your word, that those words would be lost and forgotten. But God, that your truth would do as you promised, um, that it would go out and not return until it's accomplished on what you have purposed for it. Um, So God, we give ourselves to you. We ask that your spirit would be at work uh, as we come to your word now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we come to chapter 25, I want to just point out what comes before it. Shocking. It's chapter 24. Um, 24 is an oracle of God's judgment. It is a just about unparalleled statement of God's wrath. Just look at verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it's just downhill from there. This is God's judgment on all the earth. It speaks about the, the final coming judgment. And you might say, that this is the new and greater flood that it's pointing forward to. The ultimate cleansing of the earth. And then what follows in chapter 25 is a picture of the the new creation. This is God building on and clarifying these promises that he's been making. His promise to restore the earth. It's kind of like when you're driving your car in the winter. Um, And of course, as a good Canadian, you don't waste time like scraping the whole windshield. That could take 
minutes. Uh, no, you grab your credit card or whatever you have, and you, and you just clear out the, the, the smallest possible patch to make, it, to make you able to drive, right? And so you're driving along, looking through this little hole, um, and slowly, as the car warms up, it begins to melt off, and you can see a little more and a little more, and it gets clearer. Um, that, that's what God is doing here. He, he's made this one first promise in, in Genesis, just small. We get a glimpse, and, and as it goes, he's melting off a little more of the, the windshield. 25, Isaiah 25 is, is part of God just clearing the window, letting us see a little more and a little more clearly what he's doing uh, and, and what his promises will bring. So Jesus' resurrection Um, promises that new creation and we can actually go back then to Isaiah to to see what that entails what do you mean by this firstly in in verses one to five we see that because he lives there will be help for the weak because he lives there will be help for the weak Um, verse one starts with this song of praise Isaiah is just worshiping God for his goodness for his faithfulness in contrast to those who are being judged in 24, um, Isaiah is saying, I will exalt you, I will worship you, I will praise your name. And verse 2 speaks past tense, as if these things have already happened. That, that's not uncommon in prophecy. Um, these are future plans of the Lord. These are promises that will one day be fulfilled. Um, but as Isaiah is writing this prophecy, he's, think of it this way. He's so confident that it will happen that he speaks about it as if it already has. And notice as Isaiah says um, why he's worshiping then, there are two sides to the same coin. Um, first, that God will destroy the wicked. He says, you have made the city a heap. He's not talking about any particular city. He's using the city there, um, kind of like we would use the word world in a negative sense. The city is the hub of the economy, of culture and politics and power. The city was the, the heartbeat of the, the worldly system, the, the, the worldly system that was in opposition to God. Back to the the line of Cain. Um, This is the people who are invested in and building their kingdom on this earth. The powerful people who run the world. Isaiah says God will destroy them. He will leave this worldly system in in a heap of rubble. And then the other side of the coin, we see God will rescue the weak. He's going to destroy the wicked and he's going to rescue the weak. Verse 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter in the storm, a shade from the heat. God is going to lift up and protect the small, the insignificant, the poor, the downtrodden. As Isaiah was writing this um, to be read by the people of Israel, you have to understand the, the nation of Israel is almost completely crumbled. It's falling apart. The northern half had already been invaded, taken off into captivity. Um, But worse than that, the people left had had turned away from God. Those actually seeking the Lord, even within the nation of Israel, were the minority, were the, the few within Israel. The nation of Israel was weak, and the people of God within Israel were small or looked down on, or pushed aside. 
They needed to hear that God was going to protect the weak, that God was going to do something about the, the chaos and the wickedness that was all around them. I think we still need that today. Jesus clearly anticipated this. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, question, does the world hate you? Man, I keep wondering, when are one of these sermons going to get on the internet somewhere that somebody sees it and like, we're done for. Um, if our government knew the things that we talked about, um, we, we, we don't fit. We don't belong in this worldly system. If the world hates you, okay, I'm listening. Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, again, did they persecute him? Yeah, they hung him on a cross. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Church is followers of Jesus. As those chosen and called out of this world and into his kingdom, we don't belong. We're going to be outsiders. We're not going to be those who are accepted and honored in this world. The world is not going to operate the way that we think it should. Um, I don't think that shocks anybody anymore. It shouldn't. We ought to expect that. Jesus told us it would happen. This world will be hard. Don't be surprised by that. But in the end, there's a better day coming. God will destroy the wicked. We read this uh, on Friday, Psalm 92.7. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. The wicked will do well. They will flourish. They'll seem to prosper in this world, but their end is written. They will be doomed to destruction. God will destroy the wicked. He will rescue the weak. This is is the promise of God's peace. In the resurrection of Jesus, we see the the beginning of this new world where the the weak are rescued and the wicked are put down. And in that world, those who twist and distort justice, those who corrupt the truth, those who persecute the righteous, they'll be stopped. Stopped. Their attacks will be like the the wind blowing against a wall. It comes to nothing. Like the heat of the sun that that beats down until a cloud comes in between and then it's cool. It's stopped. God will leave them in in rubble. He will rescue the weak. There will be true social justice. It's coming because the Lord himself will be our king. He will be the the stronghold and the shelter and the shield and the shade, a perfect refuge for those who are weak. There will be help for the weak. Secondly, then, there will be a haven for the weary. A haven for the weary. This world right now, again, it's a broken place. It's a world under the curse of sin. There is death, there is disease, there is suffering and sorrow, there's there's violence and abuse, there's broken relationships and heartache. It's all because of sin, this disaster that we live in. Isaiah points forward to this glorious new creation. This new world will be different. So he says in uh, verses 6 to 8, On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, 
of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. There's so much we could unpack here. This is rich. This is, this is mountaintop view uh, of, of Scripture. The first thing we see is God's promise of provision. God promises provision. Just like God gave Adam and Eve every tree that was good for food, and then the, the kind of echo in the story of Noah, he gives Noah all the animals to eat. Here in the new creation, there's a feast. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's Food, well-aged wine, the finest of drinks. There's food full of marrow. That's the fatty stuff. The rich steaks, that's the good stuff. There's no more scarcity. There's no more hunger. There's no more scraping by under tight budgets and need and struggling. Rich food, the best food. This is the, the ultimate Easter dinner is coming. But there's so much more than just that. It's not just about food. It's a picture of the, the satisfaction of the soul. He talks about the, the satisfaction of the body, but he's trying to, to, to draw our eyes up to see that it's more than that. God's promise of provision is the promise of fullness of life. Fullness of life. Again, looking forward to Jesus, John 6, 35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will not thirst. Jesus isn't talking about a grumbly stomach and a dry mouth. So much more than that. He's talking about the hunger and the thirst of the soul. True heart satisfaction. I think, yes, I think there will be a literal feast. But I think there will be infinitely more than that. A life, a life of abundance, the resurrection, the new creation that flows out from it in this new world is filled with God's richest provision in every way. And not only will he provide the fullness of life, but, but verse 7 and 8, God promises the end of death. It's the end of death. Jesus will swallow up, and he talks about this covering the veil that is over all nations. What is that? What's the cover that, that hangs over us? What is the, the gloom that, that just bodes over this world? It's death. He clarifies it. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. No more death. The Lord himself will wipe away every tear. It's a world without pain or sorrow? How's he going to accomplish that? How will death be removed from this new creation? How do we get from, from here to there? The death, death is the curse of sin. The end of verse 8 says the reproach of his people he will take away. The new creation is a world without sin. 
and therefore a world without death and without tears. That's the world that was purchased on the cross. By death, Jesus defeated death. He paid the penalty for our sin. The resurrection promises this. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul says, if, if Christ has not been raised, then your, your preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection is not true. Um, if we're just talking about a theoretical resurrection or a mystical resurrection, guys, pack it up and go home. There's no point being here. But he goes on to say, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He's looking forward to the final resurrection. When the Israelites grew a crop, they had a, a field full of, of ripened crop, they wouldn't touch it. They wouldn't touch one piece until they would harvest a small portion of it, and they would offer that as a sacrifice to the Lord. And that first little offering, that was called the first fruits. Once the first fruits were offered, it was like the floodgates were open. Then you could harvest and enjoy the rest of the crop. And so you imagine living throughout the winter on last year's crop and seeing the stores dwindle as the, the new crop grows. And once you've offered that first fruits to the Lord, then you bring it all in. And they would have a feast together, a celebration. Jesus is the first portion. And once that first portion is harvested, the whole rest of the crop follows. So Paul says, just like Everyone who is born in Adam, born in sin, will die. In the same way, because of the resurrection, everyone who is born in Christ, born again in Him, will be raised to new life. When we come to the end of time, we will be raised again, given new bodies, glorified bodies, that, that lingering sin in us will be wiped away. We will be like him, resurrected. So then, as, uh, as we read already, Paul goes on to quote Isaiah 25. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now follow the, the logic here. The, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law. He took the penalty, the curse on our behalf and so removed the sting of death, removed its threat. And as he rose again, it was this public and glorious display that death could not hold him down. He had, he had paid every last drop of the curse of sin, and there was nothing left. He was raised again. This is the hope that we have promised by God. That was promised again in Genesis 2 with a, just a, a little bit of clarity. It's brought a little more into focus into to Genesis 8 and 9. Isaiah 25 brings it a little more into focus. We're getting a bigger picture. But the clearest picture we have is the same promise stated again in Revelation. 
Listen to Revelation 21, 1 to 6. It's too big to put on the screen. Just listen as I read or if you want to turn there, but listen to the echoes of Genesis and, and Isaiah. Revelation 21, 1 to 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. This is it. This is the promise from from Genesis to Isaiah to Revelation. It's it's the same promise. From Genesis 2 to Revelation 21, God's promise is the same. His plan is working its way out. It's the provision of God. It's the peace of God. It's the presence of God. This is the haven of rest for the weary. This is what we're looking forward to. Kids, listen to me. I don't know if you're like me. When I was young, you get so confused just wondering, what is heaven going to be like? Will it be kind of floating around with clouds and harps? Will it be, will it be like angels with wings? Here's the question we're not quite brave enough to ask. Will it be boring? What are we going to do? I don't want to go float around in the clouds. Guys, I don't know where that picture came from. That's not the Bible. That's not it. I don't even know why we use the word heaven so much. I think it's unclear and sometimes unhelpful. What we're looking forward to is not floating around in the clouds. What we're looking forward to is a new creation. It's it's this world made new. It's like this earth, but without sin and without death and with the presence of God here and his full provision. It's much more like the Garden of Eden today than, than like this picture of floaty clouds. There's a new creation coming. So yes, this world is a dark and painful place. There are hurts and pains that are deep. But there's a new creation on the way. It will be help for the weak. It will be a haven for the weary, a place of rest and joy for those who are done with the brokenness. Finally, because he lives, there's a hope for the waiting. A hope for the waiting. Starting in verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in the dunghill. 
And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it like a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the the high fortification of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. So on that day, the day of the Lord's final and glorious victory, we're going to see this stark, stark contrast. This is judgment and new life put side by side again. Verse 10, the Lord's going to put his hand on the mountain and his foot on Moab. The hand is God's blessing. It's his kindness. The foot is God's wrath. The hand is his blessing. The foot is his wrath. He will bless those on this mountain. He will crush those in Moab. Why Moab? Why picking on this little country? What is it about Moab? Well, Moab was one of the nations next door to Israel, and they had a bit of a history with Israel through the Bible. But specific, specifically to Isaiah, Moab is noted for their pride. They're set apart and, and made note of for their pride. Isaiah 16, 66 says this, We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. That theme of pride shows up here again in our passage. Look at the end of verse 11, the beginning of 12. The Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the the skill of his hands. All these things he thinks he can do for himself, God's going to crush it. The high fortifications of his walls, what's that? That's his city. He's built it up. It's strong. It's it's impregnable. Nobody can get in. God will crush it. Moab was a real, literal nation, and and it was destroyed not long after the writing of these words. But, But that's not what this is about. This was written as a prophecy. We need to read it as a prophecy. More specifically, it's written as eschatological prophecy, end times prophecy. When literal Moab was destroyed, actually literal Jerusalem was destroyed right beside it. They were both invaded and wiped out by the Babylonians. On that day, there was no singing in Jerusalem. Nobody on Mount Zion was looking down at Moab on that day. They were being taken to captivity as well. Now, Isaiah is looking forward to the final judgment, the final salvation. As he writes about this mountain, he's not talking about the mountain of Jerusalem. He's clearly speaking about the new Jerusalem. That's where this feast will be. The new creation. His blessing poured out on all those who are in Christ. And when he speaks about Moab here, he's using that as a title for everyone who who opposes God's people. It's a label for everyone who would, who would live in this kind of pride that Moab is known for. We, we still talk like this today. Um, if someone were to say, um, that church is filled with Pharisees, you, you wouldn't think it had a bunch of ancient Jews in their robes with tassels. No, you would understand that that church is filled with people who have the same characteristics as the Pharisees. They're, they're proud and, and legalistic. If a young lady was to say, 
I can't believe I used to date that Neanderthal or that Philistine, right? You wouldn't think that she used to date a 40,000-year-old partially evolved human or an actual citizen of Philistia. Um, what she's saying is he had the, the characteristics of a Neanderthal or a, or a Philistine. Same way here, the Lord is not promising destruction and utter humiliation for just Moab. That would be really underwhelming. <laughs> There's not much for Moab left. Much more significant than that. He's speaking of everyone who lives in the principle of the Moabites, who has the characteristics of Moab. The Lord will judge everyone who lives in pride. Everyone who sets up his kingdom in this world, who lives confident in the, the, the city that they've built and stands in, in arrogant opposition to the Lord, those people, they will be utterly put to shame. This is a hilariously disgusting threat that comes next. I don't know if you noticed that. I, I was waiting to hear if some of the kids snickered. Um, this looks like something my son would have written. They're not just going to be trampled they're going to be trampled down into the dung hill. And then, like, this is just, he just gets gross. Like a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. They're going to be trying to swim in this manure pile. This is absolute disgrace and defeat. If you remember the old Back to the Future movies, Marty McFly would narrowly, I think it happens in every movie, he narrowly, narrowly escapes from, from Biff Tannen, the big strong bully, and what happens? He, he runs his car or his horse or whatever into a manure truck, and the, and the truck dumps its load of manure and fills their convertible, and all of his cool friends are covered, and, and he says, I hate manure, right? That's, that's what's happening here. It's absolute defeat an embarrassment, the proud, the arrogant, the self-righteous will be trampled into the manure pile. They'll be under his feet. Oh, I hope that's none here today. Oh, I hope you're not living that kind of life saying, God, I've got my thing here. You leave me alone. I'll do my thing. And, and uh, you know, you hear people say, oh, if, if, if God is real when I get there, then we'll have words. No, you won't. You will be crushed. But look who will be under his hand. Who is it that he will bless, he will care for? Verse 9, it's, it's those who are singing out, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him. That he might save us. This is, this is Yahweh. We've waited for him. God blesses those who humbly wait for him. This blessed future, this, this new creation with all of its, its hope and its joy and its fulfillment, it, it's for those who are humbly, patiently waiting for the Lord. Notice they say, this is our God, as in here he is. He's come now. We've been, we've been waiting for him and now he's here. It's the promise of God's presence. God has come to dwell with his people and he will be their God and they will be his people. Are you waiting for him this morning? As we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, do you see God's plan, his promise to, to destroy the proud, to destroy the wicked, and his promise and hope of the new creation, this perfect 
eternity for all those who are, who are waiting for him, those who are weak and downtrodden who need rescue, those who are weary and exhausted, who find no home in this world, who feel themselves as, as outcasts, like strangers wandering in a foreign land. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is this glorious promise that there will be help for the weak. There is a haven for the weary. There is a hope for the waiting. Are you living your life right now waiting for him? Are you? Ask Josh and Danielle to come back and prepare to lead us in worship. But think about that. Are you, are you waiting for him? Waiting is just another word for faith. Are you looking to him? Are you trusting in him? Are you hoping in him? As you face the trials and the hardship, are you able to say, yes, this stinks, but, but there's something better coming? Living your life in such a way that if he returned today, you would be among those who would cry out with joy. Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Church, this is the hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John 14, 18 and 19, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Hebrews 9, 28 So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And of course, Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John replies, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you waiting for him? Let's stand uh, and respond to the Lord 